you're listening to the Unsung Podcast, where we talk about albums that we think are unsung classics, and then you guys tell us if you're right or wrong. This is the Unsung Podcast. You're listening to episode 38 of the Unsung Podcast. On last week's episode, we were discussing We Are The Romans by Botch. And in an unprecedented turn of events, 100% of people decided that this record should be voted into our discography. So, We Are The Romans, it's really good to have you in our discography. Thank you very much to everybody who voted and who commented. And of course, to everybody who listened. On this week's episode, we are talking about the debut album by LaRue called LaRue. You're listening to the Unsung Podcast, the Unsung Podcast. I am your host, Mark Fraser, and I'm joined by two men who kind of like electro pop, but maybe not as much one, not as much as the other. I actually don't think that's true. I think David. I think we'll David, find out. David's a big electro pop pop fan in general, I believe. Un- well, I mean, I like I really like eighties synth pop. Yeah, yeah. I have, and, I have uh, a deep, deep, unhealthy uh, enthusiasm for a small number and. Uh, a vast and daunting ambivalence for the rest <laughs> and actually probably an equally fierce hatred of many <laughs> so I don't know where I average out somewhere around psychotic I, I, I'm completely ambivalent to pop. it exists that's fair enough it's I'm like excited to hear your thoughts on this Mark <laughs> it's going to be a riveting <laughs> riveting inject from, injection from Mark this week what do you think uh, I'm kind of ambivalent I don't it know. exists <laughs> It does, huh? What do you think about this tune? Ah, it's a tune. Yeah. It's it got calls and shit. Time it's got a melody. Passes. <laughs> so, have you introduced yourself there, Mark? Yes, I have. Uh, okay, over to my forward. <laughs> 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 We're in a weird sort of triangle now, so you're it's neither left or right. So, over there is uh, Glasgow's leading hand-rolled garlic cheese expert. That's really obscure. I... <laughs> uh, La Roll. La Roll? Is that oh. not the name of that soft garlic cheese? No. Uh, oh, well, I spent I spent a week uh, researching soft garlic <laughs> French cheese for this. It's definitely it's cheesy. You you're really into it. Yeah. It's Chris Kuzak. Thanks. To my right, there's a lot of pink in the go tonight. I like that. Not pink, the artist. I'd say pink. it's a faded red, but, you know. I would say it's maybe salmon. I'm happy with salmon. It's kind of like when you buy cheap salmon and they've added dye to it. Instead of it being authentically yeah. red. So David's dressed like dyed salmon and <laughs> I'm dressed like I'm a mid to late thirties grunge throwback. Yep. Yep. All is well then. All is, all is as it is supposed to be. I did see a good uh, meme the other day. It was about 
Husker do and like every time you listen to Husker do your hairline recedes a little bit more <laughs> I just thought of you Chris <laughs> I don't know why actually we're not too bad for hairlines in here I don't think mine's any further back than anyone yeah, else yeah no that is actually true mine is going absolutely nowhere yeah, yeah. I I'm pretty, can't, can't pretty grow a beard worth a damn though have you ever tried I mean I had something once <laughs> <laughs> and it looked like I'd like grazed my chin yeah. and it started to scab over oh no <laughs> Yeah, you're probably best off. Speaking of well. lack of beards. Hey, I hear that's quite in now. <laughs> it's part of the craft beer craze. The old scab face. The scabbed up chin. <laughs> Just in patches. Uh, yeah, so this record, uh, you tried to... Tried to segue. A little yes, segue totally there, but... Speaking of lack of beards, we're talking about LaRue this week. Yeah, she, what? Because she's... She what? doesn't have a she's beard. Like androgynous. Like. What? Speaking of lack of beard, she's got yeah. very uh, shapely face like yours, Chris. Ah. Very angular, <laughs> androgynous. Yep. Yeah, I've shaved off my eyebrows and got some wax on the go. You've got a bit of a quiff on already, anyway. Yeah. So this is your choice, Chris. I, I mean, I already know this is going to be a problem. No, um, I mean it's just a surprising been, record for it's you. It's been hanging over us for a while now. Why are we doing Larue? Why have you chosen LaRue? <clears throat> Why have you chosen Grammy Award winning artist LaRue? Why, <laughs> Why have you chosen number two record in the UK featuring two hit singles for this unsung podcast? Why have you chosen the only record that we've done so far which has got a collaboration with Kanye West on it? On the gold edition the gold because edition. it went so well that Kanye West decided to re-record some stuff with her. Is this our first Mercury nominated album? I mean, well, what's your point? <laughs> <laughs> You're dancing around something here. Yeah, I just, I just want oh, you. I just love to hear the. Uh, All right. So the every, everything's relative, right? Everything is relative. Um, we had so we, said I mean, the, we, uh, we we got stick last week for doing botch. I mean, botch is an unsung record. I mean, botch like as you know, somebody the comparison I always use is the one about the parents. Does your mum know what this record is? Botch is an unsung album. Yes, within certain circles, Botch is well known and it's infamous even. And currently polling at 100%. Yeah. Is that right? Well, yeah, got 100%. Yes. So. so there's no objective standard for unsung. What I'm trying to get at with this one is, as well as enabling us to go in a bit of a different direction with the chat, is that compared to other pop albums, compared to other massive, massive pop albums, this isn't actually that big an album. In my opinion, given the quality of this record, it's actually, it doesn't measure up to like album sales by people like Katy Perry. It doesn't measure up to album sales uh, by Rihanna. It doesn't measure up to album sales by people like Ashley Simpson or people like Avril Lavigne. Yeah, at the same time, it was written by the people that made it. And that's a real anomaly in extremely successful pop music now. So I think there is an element of unsung in terms of relativism with the rest of its peers. I'm sure there was a lot of guidance. I'm not so naive as to think this was like an entirely organic process. And I know the guy had been a producer beforehand. He'd worked with girl bands and things. But there is definitely something remarkable about the fact that these two people managed to write a pretty consistently strong and evidently very impressive pop album from the accolades that it received. And the fact that Bulletproof went to number one. Yet, in the grand scheme of things, it's not actually that huge. And I think if we're judging something on its merits... In the Premier League, albeit it's a Premier League full of scumbags, which is probably actually pretty accurate with the Premier League. <laughs> um, in the Premier League of pop music, 
Uh, this is highly recognisable. You'll hear it on playlists with stuff that's had 10 to 100 times the money spent on it and maybe the same in terms of sales. And I just think it's remarkable in that sense. I mean, that's like I sold 2 million copies, right? Worldwide. Yeah, but uh, down, Downward Spiral sold 2.6 million. Yeah. Pillarproof has had 82 million listens on Spotify. He gets over, almost 2 million listeners per month on Spotify. True. But that new song by the guy from Maroon 5's already had something like 680 million and it was yeah, but, released about three months ago. But he's in, he's in Maroon what, 5, yeah. See these... Oh, it's relative, that's what I'm saying. These, um, like, manufactured pop stars, yeah. what they have is, like, a consistent level of output. Uh, so they have a track and then a track and then a track and then a track. So their fan base gets behind them. They get an unbelievable amount of streams. They have a video, they have a video. LaRue has only had two hit singles, really. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't have... She doesn't have the output of these mega pop stars. And that's because, yeah, she's writing it herself or with her partner on that first record. Mm-hmm. Like, she's still an indie artist, basically. Uh, it would be like comparing a cafe down the road to a McDonald's in terms of output. I mean, I don't think it's as simple as that. It is pop and it is very mainstream friendly. And those hits that she had are huge. But the record and her career is never good. She's never going to sell as many records because she doesn't have that system behind her and because, you know, she never wanted to be a pop star. All right, well, I cannot, I, th- I don't think you're disagreeing with me, but I, I think there is a subtle distinction here. I, I, do th- I think compared to, I think it's weird to compare her to big pop stars because that, that was never a thing. There's a lot of indie pop like this or, you know, synth pop uh, that she's, uh, you know, she's top of the pile when it comes to, you know, sales or influence or anything. I think this record is rightly regarded as a very influential record in mainstream indie pop and bigger artists took a lot from it but you know you've got stuff like uh, you know Lady Hawk, Lady Tron all the L's um, (laughs) uh, Little Boots those are LaRue's contemporaries and LaRue I think is bigger than any of them I don't think she's, I don't think it's unsung I don't understand, you know but carry on, carry on Well in terms of being a number two album and a number one hit it's it's an anomaly in that respect. It does have the ind- industry behind it. I, I dispute that. I think there's a much more subtle and kind of slightly, often quite pernicious form of marketing goes behind. Well, we discussed that with uh, Best Coast. Yeah, this you know, and sort of this indie, and the acts you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think. Um, so yeah, I'm get... not saying I'm not saying that it doesn't have a machine behind it. it obviously, does. Yeah, have, you don't get Kanye West it, working with you yeah, unless yeah, you have it. Doesn't a have the you know the you know, the £10 million spend on oh, the movie to go with it or whatever. Well, this well, was this was a hit and then they put money behind right, it. Well, rather well, f- than first of all, this definitely has multi, multi, multi million pounds behind it, as do all of those artists that you just mentioned. They've all, they've, they're all well beyond... Yeah, but they're not in the, three, same, four, they're not in the same league they're as not, Katy Perry or no, Lady they're Gaga. Not, they're not close to that, not at all. But yet, they're still, I mean, this album is still reaching number two and she's still getting a, a number one single despite not having that spend. LaRue was punching above her weight in terms of the, the impact. There's something quite nice about the fact that you can make something that good from such a small base of writers. But I, I do think it's interesting that she considered a super mainstream artist. So when people are looking at that, they're like, why are they talking about like a totally mainstream act? She is a mainstream act, but she isn't a mainstream act on the level of all those acts, yet she was still at one point getting the same profile as those acts uh, and, and radio and, and... Well, she was getting the same shopping. radio play and everything, but she was, which ne- is, which is, she was never... Which is a feat. But I think one of the things that's remarkable about this album is the fact that they wrote an album. They did have singles, but they also wrote an album around it. And so many of the other artists that we're talking about, 
they, the albums really are, and there's no secret made about it, the albums really are a vehicle for the singles. This is an album, this is a, that's why this stood out to me, that's why I wanted to mention it, because people probably think this is just a vessel for those two singles. If you give this album the attention it deserves and go buy just those two most famous singles, Bulletproof and In For The Kill, it's a really good album. And there's other tracks on it that, that could have been, and actually were supposed to be singles until the label decided to stop spending money on promotion for future uh, releases. So I think and it deserves attention because they wrote a consistently good album, which doesn't happen a lot in pop music. I think you'd be surprised because I think a lot of times... Um, I mean, if you're talking about the level of like Katy Perry and Beyonce and things like that, I mean, I, and I, I did try for this. I made an effort, man. I, I, I don't really agree. And I, that album, 1989, by um, Taylor Swift... That's that's really mooted as being like a strong album overall, so I'll give you that maybe. But generally speaking, these are not particularly great albums overall, and a lot of them they maybe have five singles on them, and it's the five singles that kind of buoy them. Um, I think even in the the realm that you were talking about, that synth pop kind of like echelon down, there's very few good albums in that in that in that tier, and that's why they they do have hit singles, and then they don't go on to have any real longevity or prominence in their careers. And there are bands that are literally just being floated based on the strength of those singles. And that's really how the pop industry works no, but anyway. I think, I think The Knife, I think Robin, they have careers that have lasted because they've got consistently good albums as well as records. Robin doesn't really have consistently good albums. Robin mm. had some big singles, but Robin's been about for a long time, man. She was going from like 95 and she's bounced about a lot of different deals. Yeah. generally tend to find as well that artists who are capable of creating albums like that end up doing a lot of ghostwriting and writing for other artists as well Robin being a primary example of that Uh The Knife are a good example because The Knife are an extremely good band they're also a very unorthodox band and they played a big part in cracking open all this scene they they played a big part like Heartbeats played a huge part along with like the film Drive and that whole zeitgeist of like 80s synth pop and synthwave of really uh, opening the doors for a lot of these acts that were coming through, a lot of these people that wanted to leave indie and go into electro. But I do think this is a standout record. Um, but anyway... We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Um, whether we agree yeah, so or but, not. As we've kind of mentioned, LaRue is basically Ellie Jackson and Ben Langmaid. They're from London. Langmaid was already a, a writer and producer in pop. It was formed in like 2006. I think they were originally called Automan. As you guys told me, I didn't actually know this because I hadn't really done the, the background early, but Ellie was a daughter of Trudy Goodwin, who was... Uh, she was in The Bill. <laughs> and Emmerdale. Yeah, that's right. Uh, to... Hi, hi guys... Do you think maybe we could pause it there? <laughs> oh, oh, oh. oh no, is this the we can't do the next is this early show? Oh we? come on. Okay. I mean, okay. You've already started off on one of my uh, my paths. Have we got some music from a contributor this week? No, we don't have anything unfortunately. Oh damn. <laughs> We're still waiting. So if you want to send us in a theme tune for the Foo Fighters Nexus, please just drop us a message on Facebook. Something help me burn out bright I'm looking for 
uh, okay, so we might as well start off. Uh, I'll kick off. Is that all right, guys? <laughs> it's yeah, seems you really want to do it. As you mentioned, uh, LaRue's mother uh, was, uh, is Trudy Goodwin, uh, who is an actress and was in the bill for 30 years, I think, th- at least 30 years. No, 20 years. Can't count. And was also in Emmerdale. So those are like two peak British soaps. You know, The Bill had a few notable guest stars, people that turned up, you know, early on in their careers and then went on to to really make it. Uh, Amongst them, Hugh Laurie, Sean Bean, Ray Winston, and a very young James McAvoy. Now, James McAvoy has appeared in such films as uh, X-Men First Class, Filth, he also appeared in 2011's uh, Nomeo and Juliet, an absolute classic, uh, the sequel of which was released uh, recently. Now, I could have gone down the route that Ozzy Osbourne is also, <laughs> uh, provides a voice in that's, Nomeo. That's too easy for but you. That's too easy. So <laughs> I went down the uh, Ashley Jensen route was also in Nomeo and Juliet. Who's that? Ashley Jensen from Extras and also Ugly Betty, the, the Scottish one on Extras. Oh, really? Aye. That's her name? Yes. She's brilliant. She is great. And, uh... She's also in the film The Lobster, and she's fucking dynamite. That's That's a good film. film, film, Now, you will have seen the series Extras with Ricky Gervais and Ashley Jensen, and there's a part, one of the notable uh, guest stars is uh, David Bowie. 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 David Bowie. What's the, um... What's the song he sings to, to... Ricky Gervais and that. Silly uh, little fat man. Silly little fat man. Uh, and anyway, there was uh, news uh, recently that um, uh, David Bowie uh, rejected the chance to work with Dave Grohl. Apparently, uh, Dave Grohl played his 50th birthday party at Madison Square Garden and asked David Bowie to appear on a Foo Fighters track or just work together. And David Bowie told him, fuck off. <laughs> So uh, yeah, that's my nexus. Great, thanks. Bye. David David Boy definitely had his good moments and his bad moments. Yes, he definitely did. <laughs> Turning down the knighthood, good moment. Having sex with underage girls <laughs> repeatedly, bad moment. bad moment. Yeah, yeah. You got one nexus? Have you got one? No, nah, I didn't bother. I'm too excited. Yeah, Alan Moulder produced this uh, mix the second record and he mixed Wasting Light by Foo Fighters. Yours are always <laughs> so quick, <laughs> incredible. <laughs> are you this good in bed? <laughs> well. No, but it's obvious sixty degree separation, so you know it's like one jump. Yeah, two jumps is fine. I win. I'm always winning. <laughs> uh okay, so uh, play this music out and get back to the, the matter at hand. Yeah. Thanks a lot. You didn't Sweet. actually mention that uh, LaRue's dad is Mr. Kit Jackson, who, as you probably remember, played Mr. Statter, the bank manager in Boone. Remember Boone, Dave? Oh my god, Boone. <laughs> what was Boone? I don't remember Boone. Hi, Ranger. You remember this? No, no idea. I remember Boone. Ah, oh, jeez, oh. Apparently he appeared in the bill a couple of times as well. So Died, you know, uh, it's probably what he meant. Family, there. And he was a bank teller in London's Burning. Remember that? Oh yeah. I, I do also, remember that. Sean Bean. Played Michael in Heartbeat as well. Uh, I'm sure you remembered that too. Anyway, uh, he actually makes an appearance on this album in track two in that weird thriller-esque that vocal him? spoken oh, okay. word. That's yeah. a da. Right da, could you do some spooky 
talking on my tune. It's a belter. Yeah, so Larue was mainly Ellie and Ben. Um, it really, I think, in most people's minds, was about her because she was so intrinsic to the, the image. He was her face on the album cover. Yeah, she she became interchangeable with Larue. Larue was like a character. Even even the way she started talking about it, Larue, she spoke about Larue in a kind of third person. The name was like a combination of uh, Larue and Larousse, which is like the red one to and do with uh, hair garlic and the garlic cheese. spreadable cheese. Yeah, but it really kind of became about her and her androgyny and her kind of new romantic looks and her powered suits and kind of gender fluid thing. I think the gender thing is really important to us because LaRue became a bit of a kind of gay icon, whereas LaRue's actual sexuality is still pretty under wraps. I mean, she gets interviewed in a number of kind of LGBT plus publications. She refuses to kind of comment on it. She says it's nobody's business. Obviously it's not. Although she does say she doesn't identify as male or female, and other than that, she just won't speak on the well, subject. Yeah, but I think also another thing with her was that this record sort of came out of nowhere for them as well, I think. And I don't think she ever wanted to be famous, and she, you know, she says that she never knew how to be famous. I read that. I don't know how much I believe that. I don't know. She's she was, from a, she from a was never, family. Yeah, but she was never a character uh, like herself. You know, you never found out about anything about her. I remember, you know, when the album came out, she was never going out and making stories about herself. It was always just, you know, she was there making the music and quite an image yeah. conscious but I read, thing. But yeah, I read the stuff you're talking about. She said that she didn't have any celebrity fe- friends and she doesn't know what those kind of people talk about when they get together. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, man. I mean, maybe... I, I guess I, I take that with a little bit of a pinch of salt, though. She is from a showbiz family. I'm, no doubt... Showbiz. What, <laughs> yeah, man. The bill. man. <laughs> um, Jimmy! Uh, she's um, not exactly a Baldwin. I don't know. You don't sign that kind of deal if you don't want some level of success, but, you know, maybe you're right, maybe I'm not. And as I say, the androgyny thing's a big part of her, a big part of the, the, the appeal to the gay scene. The look is fucking brilliant. I think I think the look is a big part of what makes it such an, an interesting proposition to start with. I don't know, it's not unnerving, but it's just really, really intriguing. Uh, the videos are great. It's just some really captivating about the androgyny in it. The relationship with her and Ben Langmaid deteriorated pretty badly after their album came out and it kind of went to kind of underline what a nasty kind of place pop music can be I think uh, because they were really struggling to write a follow-up to this. I think there was a lot of demoing and stuff and um, he'd never really been in any of their videos. He wasn't part of their live setup. They had a touring band. She actually eventually fired the touring band all bar one member, um, Mickey O'Brien who she kept but the rest of them she replaced them with like a sort of so a celebrity, pseudo-celebrity touring band with people from Gorillaz and Metronomy and stuff. I think I, I think Mickey O'Brien's actually Ed O'Brien from Radiohead's cousin, something like that. Yep. Um, why, did she, why did she fire them? I don't know. I don't know. I found that that didn't sit so well. It seemed like for the second album they were gearing up for like a bigger thing. Ben had gone. The writing was partly being done by a guy called Ian Sherwin who came in and that's part of the reason that Ben left apparently. He hated the guy and he went on record this calling him a fucking idiot. Mm. Ellie described Ben dismissing some of the suggestions for music that she brought in. She said, uh, she went on record saying there wasn't a great deal of understanding musically anymore. On the sleeve notes to their second album, they said that she was she was credited for various performances, but he said, when asked something along the lines of, what did she play in the record? And he said, uh, triangle, maybe. You know, so I don't know how 
genuine the credits were that she was given for that album. I'm not sure. Who knows? But there definitely seemed to be no love lost by the end. She says they're not in touch anymore, despite at one point him being a, a close confidant of hers in the, the years before the band broke. He's since retweeted things like fuck LaRue, nobody knows her. Some folks said that might be ironic because he did also tweet a lot of really positive things about the second album. After she did some stuff with Kanye, uh, a song called That's My Bitch, uh, she did some vocals on that awesome title, Kanye, well done. She was quoted as saying about Kanye, fuck him, nobody likes him. And then true to uh, acrimony, Ben Langmaid came out and tweeted uh, something along the lines of love you, Kanye. I think the two of them just ended up at Bitching at each other. Loggerheads, yeah. And it did kind of leave like a slightly nasty taste in the mouth. It's like, as you said, they probably hadn't banked on the level of success that might that would come their way on that first record and it seemed like it did overwhelm them. So it was five years between the albums and it seems like there was a lot of trying to follow it up. Langmaid's credited for, I think, five uh, five full credits and maybe three co-writing credits out of the stuff that appeared in the second album. I think the second album's pretty poor, but We'll, kind of mention, we'll touch on that in a wee bit because I know people that actually prefer it albeit I don't understand that at all so in the interim between the two albums aside from all the breakup stuff and the bad feeling and the attempts to pull together something that could follow that, that first record given that it had such a warm reception uh, at one point Ellie had lost her voice quite severely she does talk about going for speech therapy she saw a throat specialist She's, she had <laughs> I don't even know how to say it laryngeal massage she saw multiple doctors and then eventually went to performance anxiety specialists, which seemed to be the issue underlying. And she does say that she was uh, shocked there didn't seem to be any support system for a singer on a major label who had this problem. But I read that, <laughs> it seemed a little bit entitled to me. There was something a little bit sort of, yeah, all right. Um, and also that list of things that I just read out that she did to try and solve it, that's that's quite a big support system yeah <laughs> it's like <laughs> six or seven different things that she tried it did eventually work i mean i think it makes sense that it was a, a performance anxiety thing because she was overwhelmed by what had happened there was also probably a great deal of anticipation and pressure regarding how they were going to follow it and then with things like ben leaving this new writer coming in and no doubt the label being quite insistent and involved uh, throughout uh, I, I can absolutely see how that would have led to that She'd also caused a little bit of controversy uh, following the release of the first album with some comments that she'd made about women and domestic violence. Some, I think the quote was, women wonder why they get beaten up or end up having a relationship with arsehole men. Uh, it's because you attracted one, you twat. Which did not go down well. Uh, especially given that she was doing so well in the kind of progressive leaning publications and fanzines and webzines. That uh, sort of went against the flow, shall we say. She's since said about how she was young and naive and stupid, and she does regret saying that. But I, I think that would all add up to create quite a lot of pressure on her. Hi, people. Uh, sorry to interrupt this episode, especially given that it's my choice. David and I, as you can probably tell, are both labouring under head colds. I blame that and a lack of vitamin C. There may be a hint of scurvy. If we can get some money for the podcast, please, uh, we're going to invest most of it in citrus fruits this time around. I just want a fucking tangerine. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe some hosting. Hosting and citrus fruits are the two things that the podcast is most lacking in right now. 
and you have the power to redress that balance <laughs> um, so your podcast needs you you can donate via unsungpod.net forward slash donate um, I like having nachos work I'm so nope. jealous pretty good yeah nobody likes a gloater <laughs> The second album have you listened to it that's all right mark fine a couple of tracks and then i can get through it, do you know what it's i suppose you'd say it's better produced but that yeah she really agrees with you and that yeah. she feels it's a, like uh, subjectively but i think the whole point of the first record is that it's so retro and backward looking is that that that's part of its charm or at least I've read a lot of reviews say that. Yeah. I th- um, I th- I think but the second record, and it is a bit more dynamic and it's got a bit more flow to it, but I just, I never really struck a chord with me at all. See, I, I think you're kind of touching on it. I think one of the things, that, one of the words that comes to mind is naivety, but I mean that in a positive way. Like, I think the first album seems very spontaneous and doesn't seem too contrived. It's definitely retro, but it's also a bit silly. It's also quite sparsely arranged for, for a pop album when you actually sit and listen to the tracks and try and kind of tally up how many elements are playing at any one time it's really pretty minimalist for something that was going to be played on you know big dance floors yeah. and stuff like that it's, it's, it's quite impressive in that sense um it's also almost every track i think there's only maybe two tracks in that first album don't feature her falsetto mm-hmm. and that kind of breathy high-pitched yeah. uh, approach to singing that she does uh, bulletproof doesn't funnily enough but almost all the rest of them do at least at some point and that was a big signature thing with her style of singing. Singing a falsetto with a double-tracked vocal. And the second album didn't do that. It, it really lost something in that. Uh, the production is better, I'd say. She really doesn't like the production of the first album. I don't agree. I think I think the production of the first album actually really works for what it is. It is a little bit cold. She she calls it tinny. But it's synth-pop. That, that is a feature of synths. They don't have... They don't have to be warmth. tinny. No, I don't think I don't think it is tinny. I think it's it's slightly colder. But I mean, if you look at a lot of Depeche Mode recordings, they're quite mm, cold, and yeah. I think that's part of it. There's more bass in Depeche Mode recordings, though. Yeah, there's I, the, like, funnily enough, I think you go back to the eighties, which this album takes a huge amount from, and like there are better recorded albums from the eighties that are doing this sort of thing. Possibly, but this also wasn't happening on the premise of having had prior success and therefore it being bigged up for a big release. This is something that two people had written that probably, mm-hmm. like, I mean, the the, the f- first single released off this was released on Kitson, the French label, the French kind of independent label. Fair enough, it's worked with some really successful bands like Claxons and stuff, but it wasn't like this was written for a major. It got picked up by the major that distributed Kitson. So, I mean, in that sense... It's understandable that the production wasn't the likes that you might get from even like like any number of like Erasure albums, Pet Shop Boys albums. Yeah, they're older, but they've had a hell of a lot more time and more facilities made available for them. The second album is decent. In, in a nutshell, there's a track called Sex Attack ended up being really uh, popular. It wasn't a single, but it's kind of one of the fan favourites.
I kind of think it's a bit murder. The chorus is decent, but it's got a flute thing in it. It's just hellish. Um, the, the record was really critically acclaimed, and given that how poorly it performed, I think that's that's really interesting. Because um, the two singles it released off it, uh, Uptight Downtown, that only got to number 63, and a track called Kissing Not Tell didn't even chart. And given the the warmth of the reception, I, I always, I don't know, maybe a bit of schadenfreude, but it kind of amuses me when an album that gets so roundly praised by writers tanks mm-hmm. uh, when it gets to the public. And you can kind of, you start to see that thing about the way that certain consensus is sort of dictated by aspects of the media where they've got an artist that they want to agree on and all the writers across the board are like, right, this artist's hot right now. We're all agreed. We'll all we'll, we'll make sure that this record ends up in the lap of someone that likes it, that gives it a positive review. You see that a lot. I saw it when I was working uh, in music journalism as well. You know, it's like, yeah, they're kind of hot. Let's not be the only magazine to to shit on it. And then it turns out that your your finger's totally not in the pulse, mm-hmm. and that people actually are like, this album is really weak. I'm surprised it didn't get dropped before this record, given how long it was between this and the first one. But they'd been a big hit. And that's the thing, if you've got a sure thing, you've got at least one follow-up guaranteed, you know, so it is worth the label, unless things are absolutely off a cliff, you know, it's worth the label's time to try and at least push through with that second one. There are decent moments on it, there's a track called Cruel Sexuality. Uh, which is, is is pretty good uh, and has a bit more of the falsetto in it. It's got a really nice chord change at the end. Uh, there's also stuff like a song called Tropical Chancellor, which is just brutal. And I think that starts to touch on something that is the core of LaRue for me, and I think it's like the most interesting talking point about it, right? What was the difference between that first album and that second album? Apart from Ben Langmade leaving, it's that thing where you try to bottle lightning Right, and you've you've used that phrase before in previous episodes. I think it's really apt here. You've got an album that has just caused a big splash, probably fairly unexpected. That does that does happen from time to time, even if there is a bit of guidance behind it. But you then try and replicate that the second time, and it's very difficult, especially given the relationship deteriorating, the the, the toll that success took in them, and what happens is this process begins where everything that made that band appealing the naivety of it, the organic feel of it, the, the sense of sincerity around the music starts starts to kind of be watered down as the label insists on such and such writer comes in, the label insists that such and such producer comes in, and then slowly there's so many people in the room chattering away that the product that's coming out is actually, even though it's... Think, yeah, they're, mm. they're trying to synthesise what they did before, but they're really not. It's like committee-written pop yeah, music. death by committee. Yeah. Mm. I, I mean... Ironically, that is the formula for success now. I mean, the Rihanna had 50 writers on one of her albums. They're writing camp. Yeah. Know, people they, just going down and writing songs. They like, hired chalets. Yeah. yeah. They hired chalets and they would put <laughs> two writers in each chalet. Then it, after three or four hours, they would sound a klaxon and one writer would move around one chalet so the combination would be changed. And then they'd write something and then the klaxon would go. It's... It's a pretty astonishing environment that it is now, and it, it kind of comes down to dwindling revenue, the fact that labels can so little afford to risk the amount of money that they used to risk uh, on these things. There's a book called um, The Song Machine by a guy called John Seabrook that I really, really recommend, and it's far from being super sceptical. He's actually quite positive on the whole industry, 
but as a result he's very very honest about it he's done a lot of research and he just really picks apart the process that lies behind these there's also an article uh, that was written in the Atlantic magazine from a few years ago called The Hit Charade yeah I've read that really really fascinating article it's like it's like factory farm songwriting yeah absolutely it's also got a lot of like really interesting insights like that whole uh, write a word mm. uh, make a third saying whereby people like Beyonce Knowles get added onto the end of the credits for a song to give them a to give them an air of credibility mm-hmm. as a musician because people just market you know their market testing tells them that people don't respond as well to this music if they don't feel that their artist has been involved in the process and so that it becomes a factor as well which i think also feeds into why i think the first larue album is so interesting because it was out with that in many ways it makes the fact that there's people like max martin as prodigies who are often responsible for just writing songs like yeah, I was gonna even say, more incredible max martin dr luke people like that um Shellback. The amount of tracks that they've written in the top 20 at any given moment is astonishing. When you, when you go back and look at who wrote the songs in the top 20 in, say, 1988, even when there were big, big artists there, the names were all different. There were maybe the odd one. They might get Quincy Jones on a couple and that kind of thing, but you didn't get this industrial level between all these big writing houses. The fact that songs are written and then put out to tender. I mean, they always they use the, the song Umbrella, by Rihanna as a good example because that was offered to all manner of people including Madonna and Britney Spears and they went mental at their managers for passing it up once they saw how big a hit it was I think for Britney Spears that was actually mooted to be like her big comeback after her, her meltdown and they missed it I mean the, the whole Max Martin thing is endlessly fascinating because it's, it's not just about the fact that they can write good songs well appealing aesthetically pleasing songs but the fact that he's able to shift with the times as well you know, it doesn't really have a huge say in what the sound of an era is going to be, but he writes songs in that era, which is quite a talent in itself. Yeah, very astute. There, there is a bit of a reciprocity around the, the tastes being dictated to them and them dictating the tastes. I mean, they're not completely impotent in that respect, yeah. but they are very, very adaptable. I totally agree with that. There's, to be honest, man, there's a hell of a lot of market research involved in it. There's totally, a hell of yeah, a lot absolutely. of really complicated algorithms. I mean, they've actually got algorithmic analysis of the songs now mm. to try and quantize what is going to be the most efficient, you know, money-making format. Do you know, it was really interesting talking about, like, mainstream pop like this and that algorithm. Uh, I was just, I was listening to, main, you know, daytime radio a few months ago, and then I was walking around the fort... Uh, shopping centre which has music piped through all the shops yeah. and also on the, the street around it. That is what this music's written and, for. And um, mm-hmm. every like every single song was basically the same song because right now everything has got that sort of Jamaican dance hall I Is it not cool? And then you know. Uh, what's the word for that? Yeah, there's not a reggaeton? No, it, there's that, yeah, but there's also... It's come from that, that you know, over the last, like, three or four years, that's become, you know, you know, it got bigger and bigger, and, you know, Rihanna was a big part of that. It's so... You go into either Clark's, or you go into H&M, or you Cumbia. go into Top Man. Cumbia, is that, mm. is that what it is? And, and every single song that comes on in every single shop, so it's, like, at its most mainstream is that. Yeah. And that's because of, you know, these systems have just decided oh that beat is the thing that we need to hear right now yeah so interestingly larue was this sort of shot in the dark you know in 2009 that distilled a lot of influences and defined a sort of iconic pop sound that then became very influential without which we're still getting you know oh absolutely but without that sense of factory farming behind it which i think is they were they seem very yeah they seem very organic uh, and their sort of distillation of influences 
was then very influential as well. But I think what, some of the names you used earlier on, like Lady Hawk and Little Boots, and I mean, even what was that girl, Trixie, Pixie Lot? Oh, yeah. Like people like that. I mm-hmm. mean, okay, it's a bit more mainstream, but there was an attempt to then copy LaRue, which was to, to create a pop artist, but with very, very specific marketing for your kind of ASOS girls watching alternative pop person who doesn't want who doesn't see herself or himself but more often than not herself crowd. people that watch skins yeah but they don't see themselves as like uh Nicki minaj or katie perry fans necessarily they see themselves as a more discerning yeah they're a bit more alternative indie electro but yet the artists are buying are just a slightly more niche marketed version and larue was to a much greater extent a sincere version of that Whereas what came after was very much an attempt to synthesise that. It's also very unlikely, I mean, you get the shot in the dark thing like you mentioned, it's very unlikely that unless a band's first album has that detonation, that they will get the chance to do that second one. There's a really, really good interview by a guy called Owen Husney, this will be really close to your heart, because he's Prince's former manager, uh, one of the guys that helped bring up the attention of Warner when he was like 17 at the time. He was talking about that McDonald's atmosphere and he he does this great uh, interview with I think called Artist House Music and you can see it online and he say, he, he just basically says there's never going to be another Prince. He was like, because he talks about how it took three albums, it took a lot of demos, a lot of studio time, maybe nearly up to like two million dollars of investment to really let this kid realise all this potential and hasn't he, you know, with the dwindling revenue in the industry, with the fact that you need a guaranteed hit, given the fact that A&R staff, for example, in the modern environment, their jobs rest on how successful their first, you know, handful of signings are. If their first handful of signings all flop, then they'll be replaced because there's always somebody else looking for a job at a given label. And so the pressure on them to sign a sure thing is massive or to force a sure thing. So people like Prince aren't coming through. And that's why that 80s seen that organic naive cheesy lovable 80s music which is often quite fucking stupid but the reason it's fucking stupid yet you still like it is because there's a sincerity to it an earnestness to but it also given the availability of home recording and they've you know of being able to home release a lot of these uh geniuses that are untapped you know in the 80s they wouldn't have been able to do anything they would have you know worked in a bar and you know cried at night because they weren't having their creative mm. output but it's a hell of a lot easier now to you know release that music yourself well i think no it's a hell it's a hell of a lot easier to record it yourself and i totally agree with that and there's you wouldn't i wouldn't dispute that i'm not like pure stuck in the past but however it's completely different to release it and have it be successful because the the system and the the channels of distribution are still very very tightly controlled i mean it's still coverage is still paid for whether it's uh, explicitly with money or whether it's with like exclusives with, with favours we talked about this with Best Coast as well and the, the companies that own the, the radio stations that so, so much of it has been consolidated it is still very very hard no matter how good your, your product is to have it attain critical mass without a label involved that's why these, these artists people like LaRue people like churches that's why they need so much money from their record labels to push this over the top into the public consciousness because sheer quality alone for any of these whatever you think of them isn't enough to make them a success and that is still the case that you can't virtually none i mean arctic monkeys are an indie example of it i mean that stuff was there but it took massive exposure it took loads of hours on mtv things like that for them to actually break and to continue to break it's a really really odd industry i, I but get I, 
also I think success is being redefined in the music industry because audiences stroke consumers are faced with so many more options because it's so much easier to make good music and uh, release it I, I feel like it's a market that's oversaturated um, the white noise effect yeah yeah you know that sort of option paralysis of what am I going to listen to you look at fucking you know festival lineups and there's you know thousands of festivals to go to you know in the 80s success was you know selling a million records or selling 10 million records success now is just making a living um and i think artists success, are, and success now almost always depends on licensing as well and publishing deals they're mm-hmm. so much more important now than the actual record deals and it's also so much easier to get crushed to put in all that hard work and not to get where you want to be so while, while you are totally able to make as much music as you want and release it as much as you want you can get so close and then still fall so far so failure is also even bigger than it used to be you yeah, know, that's people, true. People uh, fall, I think they can people they still, fall a lot harder. I think maybe people still have expectations from a previous era, mm-hmm. you know, that are unrealistic now. Well, I, th- I think, yeah, to, to lead us on to the record itself anyway, but one of the key differences I was kind of touching on is that the, the music that came out in the 80s, some of it was really, really fucking stupid, right? The reason that that music's endured, other than the fact that a lot of it was very well written, just kind of dumb... Um, is that there was a sense of sincerity to the silliness, if you know what I mean. There was well, it, was, a, it was pre-self-awareness and pre, exactly, pre, pre-guilt, exactly. like the whole of the 80s was. So the <laughs> thing is, what they're trying to do now is uh, they can synthesise the aesthetic of a lot of these things, and LaRue's a good, a good example of that. She really, uh, or they really, made a very good job of capturing a really interesting look at a, at a really good time. To, to, to engage with people's imagination and that, that kind of era of the 80s kind of like cheesy Tron like sort of stupid quasi computer graphics sort of thing that, that was really well judged what you can't synthesise with so many of the other acts is that sincerity so when the music comes across as being slightly tacky when it comes across as being slightly cheap it doesn't also have the lovability of a lot of that yeah. music from the 80s Erasure now probably wouldn't have anything like this the, the longevity of Erasure then the naivety of the music is gone and I think that affects its its lasting appeal. LaRue is one of the few to, to, to try and justify why I think it's something of a kind of underrated classic. It, it it did come from a fairly sincere place. This was just two people working on this and it was a surprise hit and it then got a lot of money put behind it to try and push it over the top. Um, I don't want to come across like I hate all pop music, right? And hands up, a song Part of Me by Katy Perry a fucking killing tune. I man. really fucking like Bon Appetit. There's a good few <laughs> bangers in Katy Perry's back catalogue, to be honest. That, the bit in the middle of that part of me, that middle eight in that tune, man, that's, I think that's Max Martin as well, and that's a fucking beast. A firework, a dancing flame You won't ever put me out again I'm glowing So you can keep the diamond rain And don't be nothing anyway I don't get stuff like Cardi B and Nicki Minaj, man. I, I, I just can't get my fucking head around it at all. I mean, you haven't listened to Nicki Minaj or Bodak Yellow by Cardi B through a sub yet. That's just... <laughs> <laughs> it's heavier than any metal being released right now. <laughs> if it cuts out all the treble, all the middle, and all the kind of high-low end, and all I'm left with is that kind of throbbing underground mining sound, then I'll probably <laughs> like it slightly better. Um, weirdly enough as well, one of the first things that got me into some of that chat and oh fuck it's back to our alt right pattern man was i was just casually browsing on the internet before i even knew who the fucking guy was about pop music for a lecture i was doing right 
and I came across Paul Joseph Watson, <laughs> the guy that's on Infowars Prison Planet on Twitter, uh-huh. an absolute fucking pink-eyed, spineless little mole of a guy and a fucking rotten little bastard who's just a, an anti-immigrant, alt-right piece of shit, horrible little prick, and one of the main guys at Infowars now. Uh, but he'd done a video called The Truth About Popular Music and annoyingly I was like, God, that's right. Don't know who you are, you fucking mole bastard. But that's right, uh, you, you tell them. <laughs> it's a weird gateway where you end up on the same side of the fence as somebody horrendous. But I do think it's interesting, just last point in that, there's a, a lot of uh, willful naivety, like Dave's talking about, there's a lot of willful naivety about where music came from. Because what a lot of people don't realise is that Obviously, every, ever since like Elvis and Sinatra, they were getting stuff written for them. The Motown stuff was written for people, right up to Elton John had stuff written by people. And then up into like the late 80s, you had ACDC, Aerosmith, even the Beastie Boys had stuff written for them. Testament uh, Child was all over the 80s rock, man. All over that shit. And then, like, yeah, I've obviously got people like Avril Lavigne and, and no doubt as they got more successful, it was all, it was being written for them. Like, that Wanda is... Wanda Perry being one of the people that... There you go. Yeah. Once the expectation is there in these artists, their labels won't take a chance with it. And I do think LaRue, the first album is so delightfully naive in that sense, but the second album highlights what I'm saying and that that magic was lost, that lightning couldn't be bottled that second time as far as I'm concerned. But yeah, so the LaRue album itself starts in understated style with one of the absolute best tunes, <laughs> the noughties. Going in for the kill. Going in for the kill is an, a, a monster of a song. really good melody uh funnily enough i think the infamous remix is better that's fucking nonsense which you're talking about the scream one no but it's the one that it's the one that kanye west did no oh. it, no this no, no, no. the scream dubstep remix yeah and it's the one that put this album or put this single out to djs and got people like annie mac playing it i and i remember hearing it at the a fucking dubstep tent at rock ness in 2008 or something mm-hmm. like that Like it's a real reason why this album got as big as it did because it got sort of underground respect through you know dance DJs and and clubbers got to know that melody before the album came out. Uh, funnily enough, then re-listening to the Scream remix right now, it hasn't aged well at all. No, it's stinking. Uh, it's rubbish. <laughs> I, I I love the original version, man. I think the, the the original version is fucking brilliant. It's a great bit of music. You know, there's I think the Spanish something research council had done a study not so long ago which was a it was based across some like 460 odd thousand songs that they'd analysed and they were talking about the gradual convergence and simplifi- simplification of pop writing structures and how the music is getting dumber and like the average reading age for the lyrics for example is getting dumber, the words are getting shorter the variation of the vocabulary is getting lesser 
one of these things that the, and for the kill does which i think is brilliant and it's a bit like um maybe my other top five songs of all time leo you're loving me by abba chord choices a lot of minor key stuff a lot of like really interesting changes you're not going for these, these simple major changes all the time it's a really really dynamic melody that's in it um i think they judged it really well as well with the original video we heard in the car it's so tacky and low budget and sort of like sort of like a yeah really retro yeah as fuck absolutely like really cheesy and it taps again into that that kind of drive vibe yeah. and, and this is like four or five years before youtube had what, what was the name of that um crowdsourced movie with the fucking david hasselhoff and the ninjas and the dinosaurs and everything <laughs> uh, uh but you know like it's that sort of vibe that was like so you know washed up everybody in the wants to know what the name of that is by kung the way. fury i kung fury i like that was like the pinnacle of like retro 80s let's look back as fuck and you know this was this was way before this was right at you know the fucking zeitgeisty retro era yeah i mean it's 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 pacey it's got the, the falsetto thing works brilliantly in it it's, the synths are quite stabby which is kind of a feature of their mm. first album and um, the chorus lifts and it doesn't really have much other stuff comes in so the vocal i think doubles a wee bit but and maybe the stereo expands but they managed to lift that chorus without adding layers and layers of stuff again like i'm saying it's quite simply arranged middle eight's great the only thing i don't understand is why at the end of the song the hook only goes once after that middle eight. It's really frustrating. <laughs> it's like, just do it twice for fuck's sake. We're trying to dance here. Mm-hmm. Um, they followed that with song Tiger Lily, which was actually mooted to be a single at one point, although it never ended up coming out. It's weird that that's mooted to be a single because I actually I think it's quite forgettable. Really? Oh, yeah. I, don't, I don't agree. I think Tiger Lily's a brilliant song, man. No, um, I don't know. It's like kind of just again robotically the, sort of rattles away. I, agree I think her, that lower register of her voice less abrasive, but it's just not as catchy. I prefer, yeah, I, her, I prefer her voice like that, but I don't think the song just yeah it doesn't didn't really connect with me. I don't yeah. think it's as catchy as In for the Kill, but that's a pretty high bar to set. I mean, I yeah. think it's a really strong song. I, I would totally have been into it had it been a. Had it been a single, um, it's got that kind of like organy horror vibe, obviously echoed by her dad doing that weird mm-hmm. thriller kind of thing in the middle. There's some kind of cute and sort of cutesy electronic toms in it, which I think are pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a bit more throwy, but his album tracks go, I think it's superb. Like, it's a really, really good song. It works well in its own right as well. I've DJed that on its own, and it's a it's a bit of a banger. Maybe a bit slower pace, but it still really works. Um, the third one, Quicksand, was actually the first song that ever got released. By yeah. Larue. That was released on Kitson. Mm-hmm. Um, it got to number 129 in December 2008, and then was re-released. And I think went to like high 20s or something like that when it was first uh, when it was re-released. I think Quicksand is a brilliant song, a really, really good song. Um, the, the steel drum thing in it, really subtly in the background, is really nice, and the chorus is really chunky. I mean, I, where did that one leave you? I think it's a good song, but it sort of defines my thoughts on this record. You say that the album tracks are really strong, mm. and like when you take the song out of the album, you're like, each song is, oh, that, yeah, that is a good track. But as a collection of songs, I, they just, I feel like they, they don't merge in at one, they don't they don't merge in at all 
See, I would Premier, say I would say the first four tracks in this album because given that we're then no, because it's this is like Quicksand's just got the same drum beat again, and I'm like, oh, f- again. No, it's, man, it's it's not at all. It's I mean, it's got that really kind of off push thing that like the the then I think the the problem with this record is because you know it takes that really straightforward and simple. 80s drum beat and you know 80s production that we've talked about and on every single song it works but then when you put it all together it just completely lacks any dynamic for me i can't listen to this record i feel like you're not listening to the same song as me <laughs> no it's a good song but, but it, i mean it's, it's really of it's three really of 12 I c- i'm like oh i don't have to really listen to another half hour of this but it's really distinct for the first tune i mean it's nothing like the first tune mm. I mean, it's it's really nothing like the first tune is just constant rolling synth. This one has synth stabs and it has that big held note at the end of each line. It's just like the same volume and it's the same. <laughs> it's it's the same. No, but it's like the same. I don't know. It's just the same pitch to me. I, I think I, I don't know if you're coming at it with an entirely open mind. I really don't think that's. I know. A, I truly am because, like, I really like fucking pop, and I remember when this came out, and I used to. DJ at uni and fucking hell, you know, in for I the kill and bulletproof. The BPM is very different. And at the same time, I was listening to you know like stuff like MGMT and Passion Pit, and I'm much more likely to go back to the first two Passion Pit records than I am oh. to this. <laughs> um, I mean, bulletproof track number four is a fucking monster, man. It's well, a monster. It's a fucking floor yeah. filler. I used to, I used to want HMV in this. I used to want HMV in this song played all the fucking time, yeah. like all the time. And I still love it. It's a fucking great I tune. still fucking love we, that song. We played it at our club yeah. night and it was a fucking banger. Yeah. People were like, were just like screaming as soon as it started playing. Like, ah, it's yeah. a good song. I, yeah. I mean, like, I just honestly, I think it it so nicely brackets that because the first four tunes in an album is such a big statement, especially when it's a pop album. And for me, man, those first four tunes it is supremely fucking tight for that opening that opening section. Track five, obviously, is when you get into the kind of business end, like any record, uh, colorless color. It's the riskiest one from that point, and I'd seen criticism of it. People thought it was a bit too schmaltzy. I love the way it speeds up in the chorus. It has that quite relaxed verse thing. Um, I really like the lyrics and the kind of reference to like early nineties decor, and it's kind of self-aware of its own kind of retro credentials. But I really think the change in pace from verse to chorus works really well in that one, and it provides a bit of respite. Number six, "I'm Not Your Toy," was one of the other singles in this album. It's really twee. It's almost like yeah, it's, it's got that stylophone. Yeah, it feels like it's been written on a Super Nintendo. Um, yeah. 
it, it works. It's one of my least favourite on it. Although I do know that from friends that they really fucking like it. It feels like it was maybe the, one of the, maybe probably the first song they wrote. It's got that kind of trying to get their vibe, but not really landing it yet. I don't know if that's actually what happened. It reminds me a wee bit of Big Me from the first Foo Fighters record, <laughs> where you deliberately write a song that is just so upbeat and sort of like, mm. like really frivolous. Uh, to try and balance the mood out of a record because you've maybe got a lot of minor key songs. There's a lot of that on this record, yeah, you know. This, you can totally understand why he did it. Yeah, but, I think yeah. it's quite a, it's quite fitting with that kind of computerized eighties kind of sexy aesthetic with all mm-hmm. these minor key things. So I can see why they put this one in to try and break that up a bit. But yeah, I mean, I I, I do think it's maybe closer to the stuff that was on the follow up. It's not as racy as some of the other stuff on it, and I think it kind of lacks a wee bit because of that. Track 7 is Cover My Eyes, which is the most brazenly 80s rock set reference and tune on it. I really like it. It's like a kid's version of rock set. It's not. That didn't work for me because of that. Like I just I felt as though. I was just trying too hard. I mean, I do think it's like a very, very naive version of one of those big rock set ballads or, or something in that vein. But it's 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 in, totally in keeping as 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 a result. It's totally in keeping with the rest of this record. It's totally in keeping with. It's a. I, I don't want to overuse the word naive, but it's a very naive attempt at replicating that sort of sentimentality of those big eighties ballady tracks that they used to use to break up big rock records. Um, there's a lot of ambiguous sexuality in it as well, which I think is really nice. Um, and it's got that sort of like choral ba- uh, backing thing on it. As If By Magic was actually meant to be the fifth single, so that was the one along with Tiger Lily that was in the, the running to come out as another, another single. I think it's probably the weakest track on the album. Um, it's alright. It's alright. It's it's sort of formulaic, I think. And it, if it had been earlier in the record, I would have felt it would have set the tone a bit too soon. I don't mind it being at number eight because there's not many albums can get to number eight without having something that starts that starts to be a bit of a a, a weak link. It's that kind of thing which makes me question why they would why you'd even bother having it on there. Then you know what I mean. Because it starts to fall off a cliff a little bit after this, I think, the record. Uh, see, I really don't agree with that, because I think they pull it back with Fascination. I think it's faster. It's Fascination's quick. good, but Reflections are protection. Just, oh man, I was walking around listening to that at my lunch hour today, and it was just, I was like, what is this? Why is this? I quite like the synthline in Reflections. Yeah, I quite like that as well. It's got it's it's a bit more of that kind of sassy kind of electro Stevie Wonder thing, man. I think it's got a, it's kind of spicy, <laughs> and it's, it's spicy. And it's got like a, a different kind of Nando's <laughs> one chili spicy. It's Jesus got a Christ. different tone formula to it as well. It's like, it so does, yeah, you're right. But I just didn't connect to me at uh, all. But and I think like one of the things that really made me want to nominate this as well because obviously the album could have started to like track eleven, Armor Love. I think it's fucking brilliant. Else, 
think it's a really, really, really strong ending to the album. And I was absolutely taken aback because the first couple of times I listened to LaRue's album, it was more just for the fuck of it. I mean, we were doing DJ sets, we were trying to find some weird stuff to listen to. And it was how good this last album, this last song was that made me go back and listen to the rest of the album properly. Because I was like, holy shit, that's the final proper tune. And it's that fucking good. I mean, I think Armour Love's a great song. It's got some great stabby kind of stuff in it. The, the verse is like really relaxed and kind of, it it's, it's feels really unforced. Chorus is dead lush. I love the falsetto stuff in it. And there's like just loads of hooks all the way through that tune. For, for a track so late in an album, it's really rich and catchy bits. Obviously in the bonus edition, I don't know what version you guys got, there's a track called Grown Pains, which yeah. is actually pretty decent. It's better than most of the stuff on their second album, in my opinion. There's also a track called Saviour that came out in like France and places like that. It's alright. It, it, it doesn't really blow me away. But I, d- I do think, like, I know that was a long a long way around, but it's a hard one to justify because obviously people are like, Larue, what the fuck? That shouldn't be here. As I said, just to try and coagulate that all into one argument, I think track by track, with a couple of exceptions, but track, track by track, it's a very strong record when you give it a chance in its own right. I also think the fact that it came from a fairly sincere place that seemed like it was written without any notion of how good or how popular it was going to be it seemed like a surprisingly organic success given that, albeit I'm sure the label took over to try and propel it onwards because I don't think that's possible these days without that. I do think that in the realm of these other big, big pop records, which are committee written, which are coming from basically a place of mass marketing, like we said, the Fort Shopping Centre, McDonald's, that kind of industrialization of pop writing, this is something that at least briefly rivaled them without any of that bullshit. And that's astonishing. Like, that's a real success story in this environment, in my opinion. Um, and yeah, it didn't, you know, it has got hefty views on YouTube, but not compared to them. In context, it is unsung. In context, I don't think this gets credit for what an achievement it was from two people just working on some pop music for the fuck of it, that it then managed to trade punches with some of these huge heavy hitters and I think it harkens back, maybe somewhat coincidentally, to an era they were trying to emulate, that 80s aesthetic. They've also, for me, emulated some of that 80s naivety that helped those 80s songs last. And that is all why... Whew, that is all why I feel it's kind of merited. I think it, it, it is just... It is that bolt of lightning. And I think they tried to bottle that lightning afterwards and it just crashed and burned. And so many other bands that tried to emulate them crashed and burned. It's just... It's pretty special when that kind of comes along. Mark? Uh, you make a good case. Thanks. I, I knew I was going to have to fucking work at this one <laughs> this week, man. I really did. Uh, our discography doesn't need this record to be in it. I'm going to say no. Wait, it I doesn't. don't want the discography to be too one-dimensional. That's, that's, I mean... It's not going to be one-dimensional. It's, it's going to have no. Depeche Mode in it, and it's going to have Talk Talk album, hopefully, when I get Talk Talk in there, and it's going to have Black Metal. I think but it doesn't need this. This is a copy of a. It's a copy of a copy, right? And I think. Ah, but that's what I'm saying. It's no, not. I know, I know, but it, I think this was a big pop moment, right? I think it was very influential in distilling a moment in culture and slightly alternative culture. But I still think it's quite throwaway. You think comparatively, these guys have been acknowledged in the same way as. Based on quality, as it, it was nominated for the Mercury Award, it went platinum in the UK, won a sold Grammy. two million records, and it won a Grammy at the best for best electronic dance album. I do not think it went under the radar. I think it got all the praise it deserved, and I think there's maybe but two million copies of this compact disc lying in people's cars, being unplayed. 
because nobody gives a shit about it. But how many anymore. copies are there of 1989 lying in people's cars or Avril Lavigne's album or Katy Perry's album or any yeah, of those albums? Yeah, but they fucking sold millions and we're not trying to put them in this discography. But what I'm trying to say is within that context, within that top of the charts... I think there are cont- better pop records and I think there are more underrated pop records. I th- I, I'm not saying this is a bad That's going to be a challenge for you, man, because if you can show me a more consistent pop record than this, I'll be... I'll be grateful I, and taken aback. It's not going to make those lists in 20 years, and that's my point. It's one of those ones like Roxette's Joyride or something like that. I don't that think it'll make these albums because it's not as good. I don't think it's got the personality, and I think it's... The personality of albums written by 50 people working in a fucking Butlins for, like, three weeks. I mean, it's it's got No, lot- I don't think it's got the personality of, like, all-time pop classics. Like- See, that's exactly what I do think it does. Yeah. I mean, just to say... Uh, the last time you nominated a record kind of like this, kind of synthy, electro, it didn't get in. Which was? Redhead 23. Yeah, but, that, yeah, and people were wrong about that as well. Yeah. And that's <laughs> a much better record than this, in my opinion. That's, a to- that's apples and oranges, I know man. it is, but, like, I'm just saying it's in the same, it's in a similar kind of vein. That's also because people just looked at it and didn't listen to the episode. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> let's be honest, man. Let's fucking not beat about the bush here. Most of these votes are just going to be like, Larry, fuck that. Hopefully they'll be like, Laura, that's interesting, let's listen. And yeah, they, and our hopefully, audience hopefully they do. are that open-minded yeah. and that invested in our product. Yeah. Well, you know, I guess as ever in, in the public's hands, so they can go and they can go decide for themselves if they listen to the record. <laughs> they might just listen to the episode and think, no. Nah. Did you make it this far, you bunch of cocks? <laughs> I bet you there's nobody listening right now. It's Over just, it's just us. Yeah. <laughs> Why are these guys still talking about this yeah, fucking album? Fucking shower of fannies. <laughs> <laughs> go over on our Facebook page uh, and yeah please leave us a rating and review on iTunes that would be amazing uh, tell your friends tell all your friends and yeah what are we doing next uh, week yeah. David uh, we're going to do Ignoto by your code name is Milo which is, is your code name true. is Milo your code name is Colon Milo which is a really good record I think I hope you like it looking forward to that great Fuck. <laughs> well let's talk about it next week thanks guys bye cheerio